This is Beyond Species, a podcast exploring issues around speciesism and the struggle to dismantle it. Tofu Steve, and welcome to the episode. In this episode, we hear from Danny. Danny tells us about his journey from the far right of the political spectrum to his current post-left anarchist position. He explains the basics of anarchism and the importance of direct action, along with some history of these in the animal liberation movement. Danny also covers security culture and shares his thoughts on the celebrity culture within the vegan social movement. Do you want to start then by giving us an overview of anarchism? So anarchism is a very broad spectrum of ideas. The main sort of ideas is an an opposition to hierarchical systems and oppressive ideas. So usually on like the left, you have sort of the authoritarian left. So you have like the Marxist-Leninists, Maoists. And then you have the libertarian left, which are the more commonly known as like the anarchists. And the difference is so the idea of the revolution in the authoritarian left idea is the proletariat rise up and instill the dictatorship of the proletariat, and that'll basically keeps the state as sort of supreme arbiter of everything. Whereas the anarchist idea is to abolish the state completely because mm. sort of in my view like what's more like the, the most the highest sort of oppressive hierarchical system and it's the state the rulers and like even electoralism it's you're not really changing anything you're just saying you're getting a pick of your next oppressor really mm. um then there's ideas outside of sort of the left right spectrum which is the post left like post-leftist which is where sort of i reside politically um so i'm quite against most there's quite a lot of the leftist ideas that i am i don't agree with some of them i'm outright opposed to some of them i I do agree with like if you've any of the listeners have seen my instagram account about like the anti-fascism and ideas like that obviously i'm quite a militant anti-fascist which mm-hmm. I share with the vast majority of of leftists. There are some people on the right wing of politics that claim to be anarchists. So you've got anarcho-capitalists, and I <laughs> used anarcho in very big quotation marks because mm-hmm. they're not anarchists in my view and the view of most anarchists who believe that free trade and capitalism can coincide without a state, but I don't think they realise or they might realise and just pretend it doesn't exist, that capitalism cannot be upheld without the state protecting it. Hmm. So that's interesting because um, why does capitalism need the state? Because will they say things like, well, you can just let the free market do its thing and it'll just adjust itself and that kind of thing? It's more, yeah, well, th- that is the, the usual sort of talking point. But without the state to protect the corporations, the people at the top of them, there's there's nothing stopping the people being oppressed by said corporations from, as happened in in the past, um, mm-hmm. as sort of we transitioned from feudalism to sort of mercantilism into a capitalist state. There was nothing stopping the workers from booting the like the the factory owner's door in and beating him up in front of his family, mm-hmm. and then the state and the police sort of came into existence. Like the, I think the first police force in the U.S. were created to catch slaves that mm-hmm. had freed that like that had escaped from the slave owners. Mm-hmm. So without the state to protect it, there is there's nothing forcing the working class people into what they would call voluntary employment but there's nothing voluntary about starvation homelessness Mm. and the whole slew of other 
things that will happen if you mm. don't have a job under a capitalist society to afford food, a roof over yourself, clothes, medicine. Mm. Yeah, it's that thing about, I suppose they would call it a meritocracy where you have to go out and earn money to be able to afford the stuff you need because we're all supposed to do that. And I'm not sure why that came about. Like, the, you know, the, the concept of work as like this necessity um, and anyone who doesn't want to work or, or doesn't do the right kind of work or whatever is lazy. And that's the worst thing you can be is lazy, you know? Exactly. Like, There's a very good book called, I believe it's called Bullshit Jobs. Um, yeah, Bullshit Jobs, A Theory. It's by David Graeber. And it basically argues about the existence of like, the, the, a lot of jobs are just bullshit jobs that they don't actually fulfill sort of a, any sort of role in society. They just exist to make other people more money because mm. if, if those jobs just disappeared nothing mm. would really change but then you get people saying like oh the people mopping the floors in a restaurant or cleaning the streets or like things like that are seen as sort of like lower lesser jobs but without them then you know they, they, are, they contribute quite a, a large thing to society because without them then is that there's a physical sort of change in society, like if their jobs weren't being done, whereas the person who orders the staples for the files for a giant law firm, like if their job weren't weren't like in existence, then you know somebody else had just ordered, like they they put them in folders or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. I always um, I think of bin men when I think of stuff like that, because it wouldn't take very long, you know, if the bin men went on strike. Well, you just got, you have to look at like Birmingham in the UK. The, the bin men went on strike there. I think it was like last year or the year before. And people were complaining like almost instantaneously. Whereas like if a giant company goes on strike, mm. it's, you know, nothing really changes. It's an interesting one because it's it's one of those things that people don't realize the things that affect them until it happens, and all of a sudden, then, then people will be like kicking up a fuss. I mean, if your your bins don't get collected for a week or whatever, you're gonna notice, you know. And definitely, well, you just have to like look over over Christmas when hmm. you know bin men take a a well deserved Christmas break, and it's yeah. like they, they miss a collection in between and. People are up in arms because they, you know, what, what they, they have to go without a collection for one, mm. one slot. Yeah. Um, so with anarchism, then obviously, maybe the most fundamental thing to it, and even in, in the word, is this thing about being non hierarchical. So, yeah, what is the problem with a hierarchy? I guess hierarchy in the broadest of sense, there's no real issue so you have like the hierarchy between a teacher and a student and mm. that's a beneficial hierarchy that slowly erodes itself as the student becomes more educated mm. and oftentimes replaces the teacher and teaches the next one whereas you have a hierarchies of sort of industrial techno-industrial civilization or the state which doesn't erode itself so the state tries its hardest to resist any form of erosion mm. so if you like look at the cases in sort of Latin America where like Venezuela you have a state that has hoarded resources and wealth from its population and there are still people fighting against the, their own people in defense of the state just because, you know, mm -hmm. you might get an extra couple of dollars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the idea of like a hierarchy that refuses to remove itself and isn't like a, a hierarchy that people can willingly leave and enter at their own free will because like, the, in the UK, um, 
the current government are bringing in an idea that trespassing will now be made illegal, whereas currently mm-hmm. it's a civil matter, so you can't be arrested for trespassing. You can be arrested mm-hmm. for, uh, for aggra- aggravated trespass, but that is a whole different thing. But they're trying to make it so people that be like wild camping or rambling or hunt sabs would, mm. instead of being just classed as trespassing, they're now breaking a law and can be arrested. And like the police are already doing the damnedest to stop hunt sabs doing what they're doing. And mm. like, I think today they had some stupid like six police cars, a police air, like a police helicopter, and like two vans or something, mm-hmm. because the hunts have, have have figured out that if they claim that Sabs have a weapon on them, like a firearm, mm-hmm. the police will react very quickly, despite there being no evidence. Mm. All they have to do is ring the police and say, yeah, this person has a gun and, mm. you know, 10 cop cars show up. Yeah. So, yeah, the main the main thing is sort of the, the hierarchy that refuses and oppresses the mm. people living within the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's that thing then about centralizing power and then hanging on to it and using that power to um, oppress. Definitely. Okay, do you want to tell us then, what was it that led you to anarchism? Like, what was your journey into that? So, my political journey has been very unusual. So, when I was sort of... 12, 13, I was quite far right in my political beliefs. I supported groups like the EDL, the English Defence League, Mm. who some of the non-UK listeners may have heard of, like people like Tommy Robinson, who has been always across the news, groups like Britain First, which to some of the people that know me and or have followed my Instagram may find this quite unusual and quite surprising um as i grew up and sort of got into the upper end of high school sort of 15 16 Mm -hmm. i started reading a lot more than i couldn't look like a lot more like non-fiction a lot more about the world a lot more about politics itself Mm -hmm. and i slowly drifted leftwards this also sort of came with my the the music scene i was in so in the middle of high school i discovered the world of hardcore Mm -hmm. and the world of like hardcore punk and the more i delved into that the more my view shifted um i became more left-wing i was a labor supporter for quite a few years and then as i started sort of interacting with people like on the internet political sphere i became more left-wing and more libertarian more anarchistic um, I was I identified as an anarcho-communist for quite a while, and then I met people through Instagram who were sort of in the post-left political sphere, so individualists, egoists, nihilist anarchists. And after speaking with them and reading their recommendations, I finished my transformation from a far-right child all the way through the left political sphere and in sort of the post-left anarchism. Hmm. So in the animal rights movement, there's quite a strong push from the kind of right-wing elements to kind of, I guess, just create their own version of the kind of um, vegan, in quotes, world that they would want to see. There, there definitely is. Well, we'll get onto that a bit later, but I'm wondering now because you've, you've, so you started your journey like way over on the far right and you've moved completely in the opposite direction. Definitely. So do you think then, is there hope and is it worth expending energy on trying to get these right wing elements to, in the movement to 
start encouraging them to to take a similar kind of journey are they able to be put on that path do you think uh, i'd never say i'd never say never but i think uh -huh. a lot of it a lot of it was due to my upbringing the the sort of the areas i grew up in the schooling like the school the people i surrounded myself with at school hmm. this even the schools i went to and the the dynamics between different ethnic groups I think because I was in there as a child and then sort of moved naturally myself, nobody pushed me mm -hmm. towards it. Nobody was like, you know, you need to do this. Mm -hmm. I think I I only ended up where I am today because I did it naturally by myself. I sort of so sought the knowledge myself. I think with the, pe the people that are definitely, they're not children anymore. They're well into like adulthood who are still mm. holding these beliefs. And mm. I, I think, you know, there's always a chance people might change, but I don't think there's any need to expend energy trying to convince them that these, like, these beliefs are the right beliefs and that what they're believing isn't because they're, if they've made it to where they have now, still believing that. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I think they'll have gone on their own sort of journey from wherever they were politically as a child and have ended up there. Yeah. And obviously, there'll there'll always be a few people that something will happen or somebody will say something and their views will completely change. But I think personally that it's not worth time, mm. sort of trying to force them to do it because it takes away energy and time from more important things and it's a lot, i think it's a lot easier to to just sort of keep them out of mm -hmm. the movement itself than it is to try and convince them that you know mm -hmm. people crossing a, a river in turkey into sort of eastern europe do deserve to live or people on inflatable boats trying to cross from africa into sort of italy and spain and greece you know they shouldn't be mm -hmm. shot in the water it's it, yeah. it's a lot there are, there are a lot more important things to try and do and it's a lot easier to just take a more a more it is easier to just take a more militant approach and be like no you guys are wrong mm. please leave mm -hmm. mm. okay and with the the kind of strand of anarchism that you are um involved with now or that you've kind of um the the conclusions there that you've arrived at you mentioned that it's kind of like, I think you said egoistic and individualistic, maybe. Um, so, e like egoism and individualism and sort of nihilist anarchism, they're all sort of intertwined in that they're so, like, most sort of individualists or illegalists or egoists and mm. sort of insurrectionary anarchists will have um, sort of an, a nihilist twist on their anarchism in the way that. Like, my, like, so my nihilism isn't sort of, you know, like the pessimistic negative nihilism. It's the mm -hmm. negation of anything that will oppress me. And the egoism isn't sort of, you know, me first, sod everyone else. What I want mm -hmm. is the most important. It is, so like, the reason I fight for, for animal rights and animal liberation, the reason I care about the LGBTQ people having rights and not being targeted is because it brings me like for them to not have that would not bring like it it'd make me unhappy it wouldn't bring me the joy whereas you know animal liberation and like queer liberation and mm. all of those like seeing those things occur would bring me joy and i know it does sound quite quite selfish but it's that it's not because there's any guiding thing that's like, like saying you must do this. I do it because it's what I perceive as right. There's no hmm. moralistic reasoning. There's no sort of higher authority saying this is what must be done. It's because it's what brings me personal joy. Hmm. There are a lot of leftist anarchists that don't, they don't quite agree with a lot of the individualist anarchist theories and a lot of the sort of post-leftists because of their aversion to the collectivist 
ideas espoused by most leftists. So I, it's a lot of the reasons why I don't agree with animal rights organizations as a whole. Mm. I personally prefer, I prefer affinity groups based on mutual associations and groups like the Animal Liberation Front, um, the Informal Anarchist Federation, out of like Italy and Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that they work so well is because they don't have an organization. There isn't a spokesperson at the top of the list and a membership list and individual chapters in each city. It's because that anyone can on their own or with a group of flight-minded individuals can decide that they are now a cell of under that banner of the animal liberation front for example and Mm. they can decide that as soon as an action is done that cell stops it ceases to exist Mm -hmm. so if you know for some unfortunate reason the police do find out okay you people did this action who did this one in three counties over or in another country? And there is physically no way of knowing because a lot of the time cells are self-contained and they don't talk to each other mm. other than through communiques. So if you look at, if the listeners want to look into like the informal anarchist federation, they communicate through their communiques released to anarchist media outlets. So they'll say like, this group say group x did this action and then group y will be like inspired by the actions of group x in this location we have decided to do this okay supporters in this country go ahead and do something or one up us or something like that there's no way of knowing who's who and what's what really okay so yeah so that's a pretty uh good security culture then yeah, definitely. So, going on to security culture, um, you see it a lot in in the vegan Facebook groups. People are like, "I've they're either how can I get involved in insert direct direct action technique here," or they'll be mm-hmm. like, "There's like open rescues and there's large." animal rights organizations that are all about you know getting selfies and getting videos showing the faces of people on mass liberating animals and mm. the reason that it's it's not a good idea is because not only does it take away from the animals themselves as their own agents of liberation it puts people at risk of repression from the state and in some countries that can mean life imprisonment Hmm. the the idea of security culture is to adopt practices including online or in in person that minimize the chance of state repression so it it can be as simple as not posting that selfie from an animal liberation or another form of direct Hmm. action on the internet or it can be using something like the tor network to look up um like possible like locations or reading materials it can be it even goes as simple as not asking people oh so what activism are you involved in oh and then they say oh i'd rather not talk about it and the and then they like either keep pushing or they're like oh so you don't actually do anything um (laughs) i like i personally i've had that numerous times where i'm like I, I don't want to speak about the activism I do. And they're like, oh, why not? Don't you do anything? And it's like, no. Like, So my go-to response is now is the people and that need to know, know, and I don't particularly care who else knows. Like, if people don't, like, they can think mm-hmm. that I sit at home and do absolutely nothing. That's fine. I've I mean, I'm past, past caring about popularity points in the, in the vegan movement because... It's like some people that's all it is for them it does seem to become a trend in the vegan movement the last year or so with um people proudly posting pictures of them liberating uh, non-human animals yeah and encouraging other people to do it and saying you know this is what we need to do and obviously i'm sure no one would disagree that yes it's it's good to liberate animals but like you say doing it with with 
no regard for security culture. In fact, building up uh, a channel full of evidence for the police, exactly, like doing their job for them. It's it's not uh, it, like that. Is it's not even like that. It might fall on the humans that have done the liberation. It's like you're giving evidence of like, okay, this animal has been taken by these people and it's very easy mm -hmm. for them to like okay where did this person go after the event and it allows mm -hmm. law enforcement to track down the animals that were liberated and mm -hmm. likely put them back exactly where they were or just kill them outright because you know they can't account for the, the sort of where they've been what's happened to them so mm. it's a lot easier mm -hmm. for them to just call them and start afresh the farmers are usually insured mm -hmm. so they don't care and then you've got groups that are claiming oh you know 200 activists stormed this farm and liberated x amount of animals and in reality they had an agreement with the farmer that they were going to surrender them anyway so it's a giant pr video mm -hmm. and that has mm -hmm. happened recently i think as recently as sort of 2020 in the past couple of months mm-hmm there have been claims by organizations that have they've liberated this many animals and it was already agreed with the owner of the farm that they would be surrendering those animals to the activists anyway. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so th there's this thing then about uh, creating media events, which I guess is necessary, but it's it's about that balance about uh, whether you're compromising the animal's safety. And I guess I know that some of these uh, kind of chapter-based organizations, for them, a lot of this revolves around fundraising as well. Um, so they'll say that, uh, you know, some activists got arrested and they need money for court fees. Um and these kind of things. So it does make you wonder sometimes exactly what's going on. Yeah, so you can you can sort of tell which groups are legitimately raising money for imprisoned or caught pending activists and which are just trying to fundraise. So on one hand, mm. you've got groups that have posted... It's usually like... The groups that post sort of sob story videos or pictures of the activists arrested, like full face, and this is the person who you're fundraising for. And then you've got the groups, on the other hand, that are like, you know, six anonymous activists did this action today. And then, mm. you know, the, the activists are completely anonymous throughout the, through the action. They get arrested and then it's like, okay, we're raising court funds for this group that did this action no personal names no personal identifying information just these are the people mm -hmm. that were, did this action that we've covered they, they're now up in court we need your help like that's can be seen with um the smash speciesism blockade of tulip mm -hmm. meats in manchester as last month um those activists are now waiting for court I think their court dates sometime in April. Um, the ones who blockaded the slaughterhouse in Kent at the end of last year, their court dates sort of, I think it's in the next couple of weeks. Mm. And unless you are sort of involved with the activists who did those actions, nobody knows who they are, like what they look like, other than the fact that some of their identities were doxxed by the papers but mm. you know you wouldn't know if you unless you were actively looking for it whereas yeah. you have large groups that you can tell that like there's been times where they've said oh the, this person needs bail money and mm -hmm. that person has been bailed for 12 hours and they're still sharing the this activist needs bail money mm despite the activist on their public Facebook page posting stories and videos mm -hmm. of themselves sat at home talking about their six hours in a jail cell. Yeah. And people still donate to these organisations because they believe that we can't do anything without these large organisations. 
which is mm. it's not right yeah so in the history of the animal liberation movement then when we look back to things like you know the kind of heyday i suppose of the alf and shack direct action was something that was quite prevalent for quite a while it seems and then something happened uh, with shack i mean obviously a lot of people will hopefully seen that new film the, the animal people which covers the history of that but the u.s government really cracked down and created new uh terror laws basically yeah to shut them up um so what are your thoughts then on or do you have any experiences or information to share about those kind of actions in the past and what we can learn from those in the animal liberation movement now so we'll start with shark because it is quite you know there is the new new film out the animal people so people are who may not know much about it there are, there is a brand new sort of avenue to to learn about but shark started in the very tail end of the 1990s and is probably the best single issue animal rights campaign so far and it was aimed so shark is stop huntington animal cruelty and it was a campaign to close down huntington life sciences which are the largest european animal testing lab that they, they are the mm. they, they are the largest contract lab for animal testing in Europe. And quite a few there were quite a few activists arrested. I'm not sure if there's any still serving but still serving sentences, but there are like there are there are laws now in place because of these people to protect groups like Huntington Life Sciences. Mm. Unfortunately they, they do they do still exist. They're they're now mm -hmm. under the the name Envigo. And it's a, that's a collaboration of a, a large number of different labs and or, like organizations, including Huntington Life Sciences. And it was it was basically a completely leaderless organization. So it wasn't like there was one person that was telling others what to do. All a committee. It was just sort of like a group of like-minded individuals. It was an affinity group. Mm -hmm. It was basically after, so in the late nineties, Peter actually did something good, and they <laughs> they, um, they took video footage inside a, a Huntington Life Sciences, and mm. it was of the abuse of beagles in their care. Mm -hmm. um, it was leaked to the news in the UK. It was leaked to Channel Four. The employees in it were. So were dismissed and prosecuted, and the and Huntington Life Sciences were had their license revoked for six months. But Peter had to stop their protests because Huntington Life Sciences threatened them with legal action. Mm. So Shaq took over, and because it was a leaderless resistance, it was it wasn't like they like Peter, where there's like okay, Peter has a director, let's go after them, or they've got. Somebody on the board of like the, the, the chairman of the board, or the, like somebody on the board, like okay, let's go after them. Mm -hmm. So, the basic like sort of way Shaq operated, um, it, they engaged in so in direct action. So it was everything from lawful protests to sort of intimidation, harassment against HLS. It wasn't just aimed at Huntington Life Sciences. It was um, the reason they got. HLS got so scared is because Shaq targeted their business part partners. Mm. They targeted people who were supplying Hunting the Life Sciences with even like things like office supplies, people who were insuring their premises. Like there was mm. a case of like a, a New York yacht club was covered in red paint because members of the club worked for a security firm that traded in shares in Hunting the Life Sciences. And mm. basically, they made it so difficult for HLS to find business and partners. The profits dropped, the share prices dropped. Mm. They, they made it very difficult for them to really do anything. Like in late December 2000, 
the New York Stock Exchange dropped HLS because it had fallen below the limits to, to trade on the stock exchange because of shack mm-hmm. activities. There were violent attacks the hunting of life sciences claimed were by shack activists and um and activists were arrested and sentenced to prison time for the attacks so they did sort of everything that they could have done and unless you're sort of looking into who these were or are in the know like you're not going to be able to you know go on youtube and or like Instagram and see selfies of these people doing their actions because <laughs> it was a completely different culture back then. There was a, a much greater emphasis on direct action yeah. and not as much on sort of street activism. And I'm not deriding street outreach. I do think it, it can be valuable. I don't <laughs> personally think it's effective. I don't think it's the right way to do it. But, you know, if it does if it does get people doing things then you know let them let them go but there has been sort of a change in the attitudes of the vegan community at large that have led towards this sort of emphasis on new products and consumer culture and oh kfc is now offering a vegan burger let's go support them and advertise them and get hmm. So, you know, large celebrity figures in the vegan movement to be like, oh, Mm. you know, go try out this burger at this place that kills billions of chickens a year. Mm. Because, you know, oh, if if we if we don't if we don't show them support, then they'll just cut the vegan option despite Mm. them making massive amounts of money from that option and it not taking a Mm. chunk out of their profits for our their actual like meat-based products Mm -hmm. yeah there's this real really strongly held belief it seems in a lot of vegans and it's reinforced by the vegan influencers that the more plant-based options that become available will equal a reduction in the number of meat options and it's kind of bizarre to me because in the UK you could even you can see proof of how that doesn't work so for example with Greg's which is like super famous bakery chain in the UK they brought out the vegan sausage roll and now even more vegan options yeah and they're selling shitloads of these vegan sausage rolls but they haven't decreased their meat range or replaced like the actual meat sausage roll with the vegan one yeah so it's proof that it's not working so (laughs) i don't understand why people aren't getting it yeah so it's very true it's like there was a, a a big sort of shutdown in quotation marks of an arla factory in the uk which mm. is a, a dairy factory and that was like oh, i think it was last weekend from the time of recording and ala then decided that after that they were going to announce that they'd start producing a plant-based milk mm-hmm. and a lot of activists are saying oh look you know things are changing but in the very same statement ala have said that dairy products will always be the center of their Mm-hmm. sort of production they will always take center stage and even though they'll increase their plant-based offerings mm-hmm. it'll never replace dairy for them and that they will always sort of continue to produce dairy products and mm-hmm. activists are saying how that this is such a great thing and mm. it's 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 mind-blowing that the the sort of the trend mm. towards it's, it's it's not even taken it's it's taken what two decades to get to the point where activists are going crazy over KFC offering a burger whereas 20 years ago they were you know activists mm. in the states torching KFC out like to KFC branches in the middle of the night causing hundreds mm. of thousands of dollars of damage mm-hmm. and 
Yeah, that's the thing about like it's it's quite obvious that that the corporates have um, co-opted the movement in that way, or at least I call it the vegan movement because I think it's different to the actual animal liberation. It, movement. it really there is. There are still people, yeah, who are doing, you know, who understand that that isn't the way. Um, that we're going to achieve animal liberation, but there is this like probably the majority of vegans are are have bought into this belief um, that vegan options will change the world. Uh, so, and it's it's this thing about ethical consumption under capitalism as if as if um capital is like these corporates are going to respond in an ethical way like not not even that plant-based options are necessarily ethical in terms of environmental um uh impacts and like the human element of you know there's they're still exploiting workers yeah in other parts of the world and even uh in their own stores so there's human rights issues anyway, even if they aren't, you know, even if they do switch from serving animals. But yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling. But I wonder if it's this kind of cognitive dissonance thing where people don't want to take that next step and really start addressing that. Because if they do, then they have to do something about it, which means challenging capitalism, really, which means which means giving up your own privilege in a lot of ways. Definitely. So... I think a lot of people are very reluctant to challenge the capitalist state that we live under because they've been so, uh, as with eating non-human animals and animal mm. products, they've been indoctrinated from when they were born, basically, that capitalism is the best thing and there are mm. there's no other options because of massive you know, indoctrination within schooling and to even challenge the notion that capitalism is a good thing, like to even challenge capitalism, it's, it's seen as this alien idea that even though, even amongst people that were able to challenge the indoctrination towards animals and that the speciesist indoctrination, they still have this issue mm. to, with sort of challenging the indoctrination of, of capitalism. Yeah. And that's why I find it so frustrating. I mean, I used to, when I, um, when I went vegan, I also believed the capitalist thing. And I used to believe what I read on like plant-based news and stuff like that, you know? Um, but, once I started, I guess, finding out more about the political side of things and understanding anarchism, um, I started to see, like, see through it. And it, it shouldn't take too much explaining to people for them to start realizing. But I suppose a big part of the problem is that the uh, so-called leaders um, of the movement, the kind of vegan celebrities, they're not at all challenging people to think in this way because they're actually benefiting from it because for them, they look like a success when they, whenever a new vegan product comes out, um, you know, they'll say, well, hey, look, we're winning, you know? So, and that this is their lifestyle. Some of these people are making like a hundred thousand pounds a year off donations and venture capitalist funding. Exactly. Like so obviously it's in their interests not to challenge capitalism and actually to support it like James Aspie does. And I, it's frustrating that people don't see that for what it is. Yeah, a lot of people don't don't realize that a lot of their favorite influences are funded by a giant venture capitalist organization and that they are financially benefiting from promoting giant corporations like KFC, like Subway, 
and these people like these groups and these like influencers are all sort of like they are funded by the same organization there is people may think like oh it's a big conspiracy that this you know this giant corporation but it's it's true and they're very they're very mm-hmm. open about the the organization is very open about funding plant-based meats plant-based alternatives and also the the influencers that people subscribe to and donate to in the thousands mm-hmm. and they they are mm. financially benefiting from them going to you know people going to kfc and buying the plant-based burger mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i mean you don't really have to look that hard to um, to realize these things. Like, for example, Earthling Ed has the same media agent as J.K. Rowling. Yeah. So, you know, if that's who's doing your media, then it's quite obvious it's not about activism and it's about, you know, uh, a certain public image because I don't really see how you can have that kind of agent and be like a, someone who's challenging the status quo it just doesn't add up at all exactly like you've got groups like the hunt sabs like mm. the underground badger syndicate like unoffensive animal who have no media agents whatsoever they do everything themselves everyone in the mm. collective does different things contributes different things and they're struggling they've they're having to cancel talks in countries about important things like the history of the ALF or security culture 101 because like they, they take no money for the talks they don't ask for travel they don't ask for the most at most they ask for like you know can we have a, a floor to sleep on or something like that mm-hmm. and mm. they're completely non-profit they they do not take any salary and everything that all the money that they raise goes to either getting to different places to give free seminars mm. about these things or prisoner support and then you've got people running giant animal rights organizations or making youtube videos going to beautiful thai islands or islands in the middle of like africa or europe and you know, going on their fourth holiday of the year or they're doing world tours, flying and spending a week in a city all across North America and Europe. Despite everything that's going on in the world, they can somehow afford to take Mm. six months traveling across the vast majority of the Northern Hemisphere to give Mm. nothing of value really to the movement at large. To basically to say to vegans to buy uh, burgers at uh, Burger King. That's yeah. pretty much what they're doing. Well, it's, all you have to do is look at the stories of influencers at the moment and it's interspaced. It's, yeah. it's, it's pretty, pretty beach pictures. Buy this vegan mm. product. Support this giant corporation that's killing the environment, killing billions of animals and exploiting people in the global south. Mm to do it for you mm-hmm. and that's not activism but that is what is now being dressed up as animal rights activism yeah so when people think of animal rights activism now it's doing a cube of truth or having a stall and saying mm-hmm. look at all these vegan options that your local supermarket has now and i'm not saying that that mm. that's a, a bad thing like that mm-hmm. that is that's great vegan activism but it's not animal rights mm-hmm. activism it's mm. completely like 20 years ago it would have been an alien concept for that to be classed as animal rights activism because it's feeding mm. into the capitalist idea that we can buy our way to liberation and that's never yeah. going to happen mhm Okay, so we mentioned earlier about um, the right-wing kind of influences in the, let's call it the vegan movement. Um, 
how do you see that like manifesting or what is there that we could try and do about it? I know you said like kind of militantly oppose them is probably the best thing, but so you have the the more vocal front of the right wing and the far right who are mm. openly sort of racist, homophobic, transphobic, anti-immigration, etc. But you also have a more mm-hmm. sort of insidious culture sweeping of like you've got like eco-nationalists and mm. eco-fascists who are that a lot of their aesthetic, a lot of their forward-facing beliefs are very like almost mirror image of a lot of like of the eco anarchists and other mm. like other movements but then you'll um have like sp- there'll be things that pop up that are like overtly sort of anti-refugee or lgbtq phobic mm. or they, they, they don't hide it but on like a cursory glance but unless you sort of understood the buzzwords or the iconography that they use you could think mm. that you're looking at a page that is just another sort of eco page and mm-hmm. uh, amongst the sort of extreme far right there is still sort of an aversion to veganism there is still the idea mm-hmm. that you know eating raw meat and drinking a whole milk is the best thing to do but there are groups that are either completely like pro vegan or they're they're like sort of vegan friendly and they're like accept mm-hmm. accepting of the sort of the vegan ideals. And you'd see that more and more online that there is sort of a tolerance towards these groups or a tolerance mm-hmm. to their ideas because we um there's this idea that any confrontation with other vegans and other vegan activists it's it's like dividing the movement and that we the, div- the division in the movement is bad regardless of what causes that division mm-hmm. so calling out somebody for a racist post regarding for example like keeping it like sort of relevant to what's going on um quite a popular activist makes a racist post towards people in china about covid19 mm-hmm. and there's this idea that calling them out is somehow worse than them making the post in the first place because yeah. we've got to unite the movement we've got to be remain a united front against speciesism and animal exploitation and animal use whereas mm. if you look at sort of groups like the hunt saboteurs and back when they formed and ever since their formation they have been so strongly linked with anti-fascist movements in the uk and europe mm. that even now the same people that you see masked up going to anti-fascist demos are the same people out in the fields on a saturday morning at four in the morning mm-hmm. because some tory decided they want to go kill a fox today when people say oh we shouldn't bring politics into the movement they don't realize that this movement that they're claiming to be part of has always been political mm-hmm. and that politics has always been of a anarchist or le- at least leftist sort of idea mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a lot of that is to do with sort of how the movement started in the sort of 60s and 70s there was a lot of cross-pollination between punk and hardcore and the subcultures that they had sort of cross-pollinated into the animal rights movement Mm. and yeah so when people say that oh we know we need to have a a united movement and that we shouldn't bring politics into it what they're really saying is we don't want your politics in this movement yeah despite this person making a highly political statement against a group of people yeah yeah that's exactly it it's just a it's just a cover story for not wanting to address or admit to their own politics 
what what I would like to see happen is for the current movement to stop thinking that they know it all that an influencer on youtube has all the answers and i would love to see the movement look back on itself and look back at groups like the animal liberation front the animal rights militia the hunt saboteurs um group like groups like shack and learn from what they did and learn from what made them effective instead of mm-hmm. blindly following large like groups that have sprung up in the past year or so that are using Google Docs to like take personal information and then say, are you willing to be arrested, yes or no? Because if a, if a cop gets that, their hands on that, that's okay, that's intent. They, they have intent mm. to commit a criminal act. Regardless of if you do anything, that's intent. So mm-hmm. that's why um, Extinction Rebellion had its leadership lifted off the street or out of their houses a week before their big quotations rebellion last year because they'd made the intent that they were going to do something regardless of what they were going to do. Yeah. So I think that people, that the movement really seriously needs to take a look at itself, take a look at the history of the movement and learn why these people were so successful because when you've got like when you're heralding sort of the 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 dairies coming to an end despite dairy consumption being up worldwide because places are going out of business and then you look back at the sort of news clippings from the 80s and 90s where activists were causing two million dollars worth of damage in one night that Mm. caused businesses to just shut overnight there was actions against uh, a new ski resort by the earth liberation front and that action caused so much damage that the resort couldn't open and the the company that was building it went out of business and now Mm -hmm. instead of sort of putting companies out of business the movement is Mm -hmm. funding those companies like we spoke about kfc (laughs) and greg's instead of causing financial damage they're paying their you know they're putting money straight into the shareholders pocket and i'd also love to see the movement decide that everything is political that nothing especially liberatory politics nothing is apolitical in this movement Mm. and when you've got Mm. you know people with mass followings saying things like against ethnic groups or lgbt people or even people that are like mm. are homeless and are ask, like begging for even just a bit of money mm. or some food, instead of using it as sort of a score point to think, oh look, I can preach about veganism. Just give them, just give them some money. Or <laughs> when somebody makes a mm. post, you know, lambasting China for doing, oh yeah, some of their practices are are pretty horrible but if you've ever seen the inside of a slaughterhouse in the uk you know that gassing pigs with co2 Mm -hmm. so they burn from the inside out for two and a half minutes is pretty awful as well but you're not getting these Mm -hmm. internet celebrities calling out Mm -hmm. everyone in the in everyone in the uk because it it, it's not everybody and mm-hmm. they're, they're, they are people in other countries are subject to the same speciesist programming as everyone else in the world that isn't already mm. eschewing use of animals. So yeah. I just think I'd love to see a, a more militant approach to telling these people to get the fuck out of a movement that has always been about liberation and has always been intersectional with anti-fascism anti-racism lgbtq rights you know there's there's never been a point in history in this movement where the conservative traditionalist people have been the forefront of this movement it has always like Mm. if you look at groups like the hunt sabs the vast majority of people out in them fields every day like multiple days a week every weekend during hunt season during cubbing season during the badger call 
they're either women, non-binary, a lot of them fall on the LGBTQ spectrum somewhere. It's not your standard white man Mm. that everyone seems to everyone thinks is the face of the the vegan movement because that's what the shareholders Mm -hmm. decide is more profitable Mm. so Mm -hmm. i just i'd love to see the movement actually learn from its past instead of thinking that because these youtube celebrities have managed to grow such a mass following in you know the the three or four Mm. years they've been vegan maybe five years because they've grown so quickly oh they must be they must be right they must be selling no they, they've just got a good marketing team and an inexhaustible pot of wealth behind them yeah